Welcome to FinCast, the Financial Integrity Network's podcast series. I'm Juan Zarate, chairman and co-founder of Fin. Welcome back. Why isn't the administration moving harder on sanctions? There's more of a military solution to this than most terrorist financing issues. Organizational structures as a key component for helping to develop confidence. White knights of illicit finance are a myth. They don't really exist. It's a direct attack on the on the money laundering vulnerability. President Putin's reaction to any of these allegations in the past has been proven. On September 26th of this year, Finn co-hosted a great conference in London entitled Innovation in Countering Illicit Finance, Exploring and Tackling Policy Tensions. Finn co-hosted this event with RUSI, the Royal United Services Institute, which is the world's oldest independent think tank on international defense and security issues. The day's events were headlined by Lord Jonathan Evans, who was the keynote speaker, and we had three panels of experts and policymakers in the room talking about the policy tensions emerging given the innovations and technologies emerging in the AML-CFT system. The first panel was the information tension, and the question explored was, does information sharing and enterprise-wide risk management come at the expense of privacy and data protection? The second panel explored the transparency tension. Is complete transparency at odds with financial security? Finally, the automation tension. Does automation and the application of AI threaten other policy interests such as financial inclusion, individual rights, and due process? I co-hosted the event with Tom Keating, the director of RUSI's Center for Financial Crime and Security Studies, and we wrapped up the discussion. The following day at RUSI, we recorded a podcast. I was interviewed by Isabella Chase, one of the organizers of the event, and we had a great chat to talk about the purpose of the conference and some of the conclusions coming out of it. I hope you enjoy the discussion. Hi there, and welcome to this episode of the Suspicious Transaction Report, a podcast brought to you by the Center for Financial Crime and Security Studies at RUSI and kindly supported by Accurate Risk Intelligence. I'm your host, Isabella Chase, and in this deep dive, we'll be discussing innovation in illicit finance with Juan Zarate. Juan is the chairman and co-founder of the Financial Integrity Network, also known as FIN, chairman of the Center of Economic and Financial Power, and a visiting lecturer in law at Harvard Law School. He was previously the deputy assistant to the president and deputy national security advisor for combating terrorism, and was the first ever assistant secretary of the Treasury for terrorist financing and financial crimes. So thank you so much for being with us today, Juan. My pleasure, Isabella. Good to see you. On the 26th of September, Finn and Rusi co-hosted a conference looking at innovation in illicit finance. The aim of the conference was to discuss three core policy tensions that we believe are preventing innovation in the space of anti-money laundering and countering the financing of terrorism. The tensions that we selected to look at were information sharing, transparency and automation. The conference was under the Chatham House rules, so unfortunately we can't tell you who said what, but we can talk about the general themes that emerged from the conference. So, Juan, tell me, why do you think it was important for us to talk about these three particular tensions? First of all, I wanted to thank Rusi for uh, for co-hosting the conference. I thought it went incredibly well, and the depth and diversity of the participants was, uh, was really impressive. So, first of all, thank you, and thanks to you, Isabella and Kayla for uh, all the work uh, you and Tommy Iverson from our team put into this. This was an important conference from our perspective because we see that there are a number of developments happening, not just in the anti-money laundering system, 
but in the ecosystem, the broader global environment that is impacting how we think, ultimately, I think, about the, the policy and the regime and the effectiveness of the AML system. What you have underway around the world is a, a quest for greater effectiveness of the anti-money laundering regime. You see that in the FATF uh, fourth round of assessments. You see that in how banks are thinking about how to make their systems more efficient, more effective. And so in general, there's a broad debate happening in that, in that domain. There's also a question of how do banks, financial institutions, those that have to worry about the AML system, use big data, more data? How do they use new analytics, machine learning, broader new technologies to actually understand their risk in a better way? And so what you see is a shift toward a different regime, a different system. And you know, at Finn, we're trying to promote best-in-class product services and, and designs in that, in that regard. But what's interesting to think about is if we ultimately move to a regime that is doing what we expect the regime to do, that is to say, protecting the integrity of the financial system, doing it in a preventative, predictive, systematic way, using technologies in real time to actually prevent illicit capital from entering the system. What, what does that look like? And what are the tensions that are emerging or will emerge as a result? And so the purpose of the conference, I think, was to explore, begin to explore what those tensions look like. And you can already begin to see what those are. And we laid them out in, in the context that, that you described, Isabella, the, the information tension, the transparency tension, and the automation tension. And by tension, we mean, what are those things in the environment happening that may put pressure on the fundamentals of the anti-money laundering system, a system that demands transparency, that demands accountability, that demands traceability in a maximalist way. But are there limits to those principles? Are there limits to those policies in light of the new technologies and new developments in that ecosystem? And so what we wanted to do was begin to explore a conversation with the experts at RUSI with the people that uh, are in the banking sector, the technology sector, the regulators, all of the key stakeholders to begin to articulate where are those fault lines? Where are those tensions emerging? And how do we think about not just identifying them, but accounting for them in the next design of the system? Because if we are to have a system that is transparent, accountable, traceable, and that meets the demands of policymakers, we're going to have to deal with these tensions and banks, regulators, and technology providers are going to have to design for those tensions and those fault lines. So that was, that was really the genesis of our thinking, at least, as to why we needed to have the conference. And I completely agree. I mean, for us, this whole conference was set, of course, against the backdrop that FATF is 30 this year. All of a sudden, you look at, like you say, the ecosystem, there are people who exist within it who were never there before. You also have customer expectations that have changed dramatically with the introduction of new technology into the banking and wider finance space. And can you really apply what we've had for so long in a, to products that didn't exist, to customer expectations that didn't exist, but also against that backdrop of all these other regulations, which aren't necessarily designed for financial crime? adding all these pressures. So completely agree with such a timely conference to have, and it was great to get that conversation going. Uh, so looking at one of our first, the first panel that we we held, which was on information sharing, what we really looked at here is that, you know, I think everyone in the industry agrees we need more information sharing. Where we've had experience of it through, you know, 
public-private partnerships, like things like Gimlet in the UK, we've seen huge benefits. But these are sort of increasingly at odds with calls for greater data privacy, which I think is sort of within our society rightly prioritised. How do you think we can ever sort of balance this competing need of, well, we need to have information sharing for greater security, but at the same time, we need to protect the rights of our citizens? Yeah, I mean, this this is really one of the one of the key tensions that's emerging and has emerged uh, between different policy goals and different regimes. And and I agree with you, Isabella. We have to care deeply about data privacy and individuals' control of their own identity and uh, what is available openly and and how that data is used and even commercialized. And that's a debate. Obviously, it's happening with the big technology companies, the Facebooks of the world, et cetera as to how they're thinking about the use of, of uh, people's uh, information and what that means. So the, the, the move to try to protect that data, the move in, in Europe with the passage of GDPR, uh, you see legislation in the United States and California, for example, that uh, largely mimics GDPR protections. You see this movement toward greater data privacy. At the same time, you have countries passing more and more data localization, nationalization laws requiring data to reside within a jurisdiction, not to be passed beyond their borders and for greater uh, restrictions simply on institutions like banks to be able to share information. That abuts directly against what have been core principles, not just of the anti-money laundering system, but of the post 9-11 environment. In the United States, we've we've gone through the, the trauma of the, the question as to why the federal government, why the private sector wasn't sharing more information, why we haven't done that, not just in the context of terrorism, but now in the context of cybersecurity and other uh, security issues. And so there's been a, a parad- paradigmatic shift post 9-11 for maximalist information sharing. And in the United States, under the Patriot Act passed in October of 2001, there was a provision that allowed for greater information sharing between the private sector and the public sector and between private sector institutions themselves in the anti-money laundering context. And so that regime of maximalist information sharing to then allow institutions to understand and manage their risk, to have enterprise-wide risk management, which is a core demand that regulators have of financial institutions, abuts directly against this new trend to localize data, to protect it, to put it more in the hands of individuals. And it makes it harder ultimately in a maximalist form for institutions, for the financial system to actually understand and manage risk if that information isn't available and isn't shared. And so I think think we are reaching a point here soon where there is going to be, if not a clash of these regimes or paradigmatic approaches, at least uh, a, a deep tension uh, that we're going to have to grapple with. And you see this in the banking world where institutions are having to uh, figure out how to work in and through both of those regimes to meet their obligations. And in theory, they should be able to coexist. If we're talking about information that can be shared around criminal behavior and suspicious activity in the financial system, it would seem normal and advantageous to be able to share that information. But if we're talking about an anti-money laundering regime that doesn't know where crime exists beforehand, doesn't know where the corrupt networks sit in the financial system, 
if what we're doing is trying to be preventative and predictive around where those risks lie, there's a real challenge to being able to do that if information is being constricted or uh, contained within jurisdictions or even within institutions. Mm. So I think you make very good points, this whole balance between like localized localization of laws, having to keep data in country versus this is cross-border problem, we need to share problems across border, was a really big theme that came up yesterday and is impossible to grapple with. And one thinks that, you know, it's if you're a huge multinational bank, at least you can resource this problem. But if you're a smaller company, that just must be such a barrier to business. But I think because we like to be solutions, solutions orientated and not just look at barriers. We do too, we do too. Um, (laughs) I thought one thing that was interesting was that, you know, people sort of agree, well, it's really difficult for us to share personal information, especially when it's uh, financial, but there's definitely more of an opportunity around the sharing of typologies. And although that is done in the UK and the US to some extent, are we seeing that, we haven't really seen that go move across borders or nationally. Do you think there's sort of space and appetite for a better some sort of better infrastructure for sharing financial crime typologies? I think so. I think there, there are probably, you know, three levels of solution in, in the context of these tensions that are emerging. I think the first is to do what you've just described, Isabella, which is there have to be mechanisms and there frankly are mechanisms currently to be able to share information more broadly, more aggressively. There's often a constriction of law as opposed to law in terms of how information is shared or how we think about the management of risk. And part of the work we do at FIN and the innovation in the space is thinking creatively about how do you get the information you need, how to use it properly, and how to use that then to manage risk. So I think those mechanisms exist in practice and you've got institutions like the Egmont Group, you've mm. got the Financial Action Task Force, uh, you've got you know the G20, you've got groups of, of bilateral groups and and, uh, central banks and finance ministries that are are doing really important work in this space, not to mention banking associations and others. So that's that's good. Typologies can be shared, pilots can be run, that kind of thing. The second category is we need to begin to think about what the rules are for uh, the design of these systems, given these tensions. And so one of the interesting things that was discussed in the conference yesterday in the panel Mm -hmm. that I uh, moderated I think had to do with what are the boundaries of the use of data in a in a world where we want full transparency? How do we think about that transparency in, the, in light of security risks or in light of the use by autocratic states of uh, surveillance technology and mass amounts of data to constrict individuals' rights? You know, there are rules, practices that can be not just reinforced, but uh, illuminated in terms of how we limit the use of data or how that transparency is actually meeting the marketplace. Mm. So I think articulating and then putting into practice some of those limits is is important. Third area, which was really interesting, I think both in the first panel and the third panel, was a discussion around where technology isn't just an accelerator or even an aggravant in this context, but as a solution to thinking how we bridge the gap and how we turn the tensions really into a point of convergence. Mm. It's something we've looked a lot at at FIN in terms of our interactions with the FinTech and RegTech uh, communities and some of the work we're doing. And the question is, can you meet the needs of a, of a global system that has to manage preventatively and predictively systemic risk from financial crime and, and sanctions concerns? Can you do that 
while also preserving privacy, data protection, control of identity, personal financial autonomy, which mm. is a, a key sort of principle now in the environment. You know, there's there are ways of thinking about the use of technologies and and very smart people, very productive companies that are innovating around what those systems, what those designs look like. And again, it's another reason why the conference is so important to begin to drive the debate so that those types of companies and those uh, involved in the system can help uh, with these innovations. Absolutely. And one thing that I think is, you know, it's actually quite frustrating about what we were discussing yesterday is, you know, across the three panels, we have tensions within information sharing, of which there are many tensions within transparency, of which there are many, and we'll get onto those in a second, then tensions within technology. But then there's tensions between all of those three topics as well. Exactly. It's it's a bit of a maze, really, to to know, well, how are we going to make this all work together when we've got so many small barriers to overcome on on every one of those topics? Yeah. No, and and something we had talked about both in in the organization of the conference as well as throughout the conference, which is the connectivity between these these tensions and mm. these these dynamics. And a core driver is, is technology, both as, as we were saying, as an accelerant to these issues, but also as a as a potential solution. You know, one of the one of the interesting points made in one of the panels was that uh, as we think about information, we have to think about how in in this new world of mass amounts of data and even you know fake news and 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 false videos and and deep fakes, right? We have to think about not just more information, not just information sharing and transparency, but uh, authentication, validation as a core principle as well. But at speed. And at speed. At rapid speed. At rapid speed. So that creates enormous tension in the system as well that feeds into this. And and to your point, sort of weaves throughout this uh, as a core question. How do you authenticate information? How do you validate it? How do you use it properly? Uh, what are the boundaries of that? And to your point, how do you do that at speed? So I think that's fascinating. Another thing that came up in the conference was, especially from the privacy community, mm. and a key key part of this is the privacy community in all of its aspects has to be a part of this conversation. And from a technology perspective, what's interesting is the privacy community is seeing uh, new technologies emerge and some that have been in the system for quite some time that are thinking about how do you how do you protect people's personal information, but allow systems to identify risk, identify anomalous behavior, and to do it at scale and at speed in a way that's useful to institutions. And so there's there's quite a bit of uh, innovation in that space. We're working with a company called Giant Oak, as well as the big company, Intel, mm-hmm. on what we call a utility model, which begins to use a federated learning architecture to not share data in a sort of a common data lake or in a a common cloud, but to share analytics. And in a federated learning model, the data sits where it sits in C2. It's not moved. But what you have is the analytics moving toward the data. And Mm. so the data is interrogated by the common algorithm and the machine learning that then pings on different institutions, common data sets to discover where there may be risk on a systemic basis all with the principle that what you want to do is discover high-end money laundering risk in a preventative way in real time. Mm. To do that, you have to move beyond the current model of a unitary linear system, a reactive system. You have to move to one where 
we're actually interrogating data between similarly situated uh, institutions and finding ways of discovering risk that those institutions wouldn't otherwise discover given the current system. So for me, I've, federated learning seems like the perfect solution to the lo- over-localization of laws because you could just deploy systems in local jurisdictions, allow those to train, to, to learn off their experience and then train a central model. Obviously, I'm sure lawyers would have something to say about yeah. that. But in theory, it seems like, you know, it could be the emerging, emergence of a solution. I, I completely agree. It's why we've invested a lot of time and energy into that model. It's why we've got mm. a pilot going on in the United States with the Bank Policy Institute and two U.S. banks. We've been talking to authorities here in the U.K. about it. We've been talking to authorities in Singapore. And so we think it's a very neat solution. Now, there are challenges. One is, to your point, Isabella, the legal regime, and especially the the privacy, data privacy regimes that are out there don't fully account for this, in part because this has been a th- more of a theoretical model than sure. a real one. This model now has been proven. It, it does work. It can happen. Uh, Intel has proven it. That's why we're working with mm. them. But the legal regime doesn't account for a traveling algorithm as opposed to traveling data, right? And so the lawyer's going to have to grapple with that. We feel very comfortable that this is within the bounds of, of data privacy and allows for the discovery we're talking about because you're not moving personal data and it can be engineered in ways so that the algorithm can't be reverse engineered mm. to capture that data. So that's really interesting. The, the, the second part of this that is a challenge is this has not yet been done to scale. And so we've been you know, evangelists for this idea for a long time that there needs to be a, a shared risk model that looks like a utility. We think we have found the right technology partners and technology to to bring that to life, but it hasn't been brought to scale. And if you're to take it to a jurisdictional level or even at an international level, the system's going to have to get much more mm. mature. We're going to have to mature the governance models. We're going to have to think clearly about how we manage the, the utility itself through the algorithm, uh, what the public-private connectivity looks like. Is it public-private engineering the algorithms together and managing it? Is the private sector doing it alone and simply reporting back to government? Um, is it you know, government mandating some version? So there are very different models that can emerge in different ways. And we're, we're at the very beginning stages of what this alternative system could look like. One thing I like about this topic when looking at sort of applying smart technologies and big, really true big data analytics to the problem of financial crime is we're really not the only ones doing this. I mean, there are so many sectors across a whole wide range of topics that are applying really smart technology in their sectors. Exactly right. We have to forget that, we we have to remember it, in (laughs) fact, that we're not the only ones doing this, like healthcare, telecoms, big pharma do are in different stages of their own personal journeys with this. Absolutely right. And we should be learning from them. And, and that 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 came through in the conference it yesterday did, yeah. in spades in, in two ways. One, the financial industry and the AML system having to grapple with what's happening in the ecosystem. And so we can't talk about the anti-money laundering system in isolation, to your point, Isabel. Mm. The second part is the deep frustration that I think exists, certainly in the banking world, to a certain extent with the regulators that the financial system seems to be always kind of one or two steps behind the cutting edge of where technology sits. And what's interesting about your point about health healthcare, when we've looked at technologies that are on the cutting edge of privacy protection, or even in the context of this federated learning uh, context, 
it's usually been in the healthcare sector that you've had greater experimentation, in part because there's a need to share that data between it's healthcare equally providers. equally sensitive. Equally sensitive, if not more so, you could argue. And doing it cross borders becomes really important. And so, for example, in the Intel context, their first venture into this to prove the model was with cancer research institutes and to, to do it between North American, U.S. and Canadian institutes. And it worked. It, they demonstrated it could work. But what's fascinating there is the first venture was in healthcare as well. The, you know, some of the discussions yesterday from the privacy community were born out of their experience in the healthcare sector. So you're absolutely right. We're in an environment where a lot of the innovation learnings may not be happening in the financial sector. And we've got to look beyond the bounds of banks to understand uh, where that innovation is coming from. Yeah. And I think one other thing that came out of the conference yesterday was the question of, you know, like, like we say, we, we very much treat ourselves as a silo in this sort of vacuum, but we should begin. We should begin to consider who else should be around the table when making policy guidance. The system, as we described, we're, we need to probably create a new system for the future and future demands. We're, but we're only still talking to banks. I mean, we can pat ourselves on the back yesterday and say, "Oh, we had fintechs <laughs> there as well, and some technology vendors." But who else really should have been in that room yesterday? I feel like you should be having you know the social media companies as you said the sort of big box retailers like amazon but also you know a lot of we don't a lot of people who control the payment rails we don't necessarily bring into this conversation we absolutely should absolutely and i and i think you're right and, and the conference did a great job of bringing sort of diverse stakeholders to the table we've been trying to do this too in the united states with some of the conferences we've been a part of with the bank policy institute and others where you do need technology companies you do need financial institutions of all stripes, including those that are trying to enter the payment system. You need privacy advocates and those that are sort of on the cutting edge of thinking about, you know, how we deal with mass amounts of data and, uh, and, and privacy concerns. Uh, we need those who are thinking creatively about what digital identity means, for example. Mm. So, you know, that's a key question in the financial sector. It's an area where to a certain extent, technology's provided a solution. You know, how do we do digital banking when the AML system is dependent on the natural person, right? We've got to understand who the natural person is behind beneficial ownership rules. We have to know who the person is you're opening an account for. You need to know who's transacting. Well, we use biometrics now as a mm -hmm. way of confirming or, or multiple forms of information that allow institutions to, to validate identity. But that becomes an interesting and important sector. And I do think as we see new technologies come online, those that are trying to enter the payment ecosystem or the digital asset world have to be a part of the conversation because so much of the question of where the anti-money laundering system is going depends in part on where the digital economy is going Absolutely. and how digital assets are used and how to your point, Isabella, how social media companies like Facebook are thinking about their own customer base, their own ecosystems, and how they inject their own control of payment systems within those uh, contexts. What's interesting there in the, in the context of our conversations around transparency and privacy, Facebook has gotten a lot of criticism around launching the Libra and Calibra ideas. Part of it has to do with concerns about what the anti-money laundering controls will be. Some of it is embedded in the criticism of Facebook, as we see for lots of reasons, questions about control of data, use of data, uh, tax elections. concerns, elections. Yeah. Yeah, so the whole range of 
of concerns that people have with Facebook. But what's interesting there from an AML perspective is, in a sense, a Facebook ecosystem or an ecosystem that is closed where the users or those entering that ecosystem are known, that in some ways is an ideal anti-money laundering environment because you know the person who's has the access to the assets, maybe a wallet, uh, you know you know why they're transacting, you know to whom they're transacting. Uh, you probably have access to a lot of data around their, not just their business, but their personality. Mm-hmm. Um, and so almost in an ideal way, it provides an avenue for understanding, you know, you would talk about know your customer. Well, th- they know the person, right? Yep. They know the, the sometimes the intimate details and that's the discomfort with these companies. But it's interesting because it does provide in some ways within a closed system, maximalist transparency. And so just coming back to your question, I think you have to have a discussion with those social media companies, uh, the big box retailers like Walmart that are thinking about their own payment systems to understand what they're doing, how they're doing it, and how they're trying to incorporate the core principles of anti-money laundering in the context of the environment that they operate in. Absolutely. And I think there's one thing that I always sort of struggle with a bit is that we look at AML through such a Western lens. And really, if you look at the rest of the world, you know, there are parts of the world that don't really have traditional banks. They've completely leapfrogged that industry. They've gone straight to mobile money, mobile payments. And is this Western dictated system that we think is really important, is it, does it really fit for them? And there are wider financial inclusion questions that we have to be thinking about here because there's more than just the West in the world. There's everyone else. Yeah. And the, the M-Pesa example in Kenya is sort of the, the best example or, or uh, mobile banking in Afghanistan. We often talk about in the United States is the, sort of an evolutionary leap. Uh, but you know, Google no, no, Pay as well it, in India is one of the yeah. fastest growing payment methods. And that's a huge country with loads of people. Yeah. We can't really ignore that when we when we think about, well, if we're going to create a brand new AML system, we've got to be thinking about these jurisdictions. Yeah. No, I, and I think what's what's important there is a recognition that in the 21st century, the anti-money laundering system isn't just about helping law enforcement chase bad guys, right? Because if that's all it is, it's an inefficient and to a certain extent, ineffective system. What we've decided in the 21st century that, that the AML system has to be is a way for the private sector to manage financial crime risk that matters for their own purposes and for the purposes of the integrity of the financial system itself. And so you've got to start with that core principle to say, look, that is a global norm. That is a set of principles that the Financial Action Task Force has set forth in its recommendations and that it assesses globally against. And that means that whatever kind of system, whether you're talking about an innovative new payment model or a traditional bank, has to contend with how it's identifying and managing risk in the financial crime space. And that is sort of the the driving core principle. And we have to kind of reassert it because I think there's often a question as to what's the purpose of the regime? We're wasting time and money. We're not capturing all the illicit finance in the system. Are we really being effective? Well, the point is, you know, this actually matters to the integrity of the financial system, not just to chasing bad guys, but to the integrity of these institutions. And so one of the tensions that has emerged is how do these new technologies fit into that broader regime? How do we think about, for example, the application of the travel rule? That is the ability for anybody in the payment cycle to understand 
who the originator and the ultimate beneficiary of a transaction mm -hmm. will be and for that information to be available or to travel with that information. It's at the core of the FATF interpretive note on digital assets that came out this past summer. And so how those principles play out with these new technologies, new payment systems becomes a really interesting question. And in some cases, there may not be a good answer. Uh, there may not be a good answer when there are technologies that are working very hard to anonymize data or where there are technologies where information isn't available to institutions because the core principle is to allow the user to control their identity and data. Or if there are systems that are emerging that are peer-to-peer -peer transactional software or data that institutions or clearinghouses never, or see. never see, right? And so again, this is the environment that's unfolding and a challenge for the anti-money laundering system. And for those of us who believe in it fundamentally is how does that system you know, evolve with and affect those new technologies, new developments in Absolutely. an interesting way. And that's exactly what FATF grappled with this past summer with digital assets. It's going to continue to grapple with it as these uh, technologies come online. Sure. And to kind of to, to conclude, because unfortunately we're really, we're, we're running short on time. We've done- I've loved this conversation. I know, but I know, know and I feel we've done a, we've done a fair bit of, sort of crystal ball gazing throughout and obviously there's with the pace of change so fast it's so hard to know what is going to be a technology that comes online and then you know in two years has more current account holders than a traditional bank took 50 years yeah. to get where would you like to be in five years time uh not physically <laughs> but, um where would, on a what, beach in hawaii <laughs> yeah wouldn't we all would what would you like to see if you, maybe if there was one big change between now and then what do you think needs to happen over the next five years for us to be in a position where we can control this risk or be in a position of risk management as opposed to just compliance? I think maybe there's two things that I, I would like to see emerge. And again, we're trying to work to, toward this and, and with clients at Finn on, on these issues. But, but one is moving from the current model, we call it track one, the co-founder of Finn, President Chip Ponzi sort of coined this phrase, track one, track two. We need to move from the current model, which is based on the 1970s, 80s model of anti-money laundering system that's an aid of building cases, that's reactive, that's institution by institution, that's built on the pillar of the suspicious activity reporting system that is late in, in its reporting and in our minds, not wholly effective, right? So moving from that model to the new track two model where the technologies are taking us, where institutions are driving us precisely because of cost efficiency questions and where regulators and policymakers are demanding greater innovation. And that's a track that talks about using behavioral analysis as opposed to a rules-based system to understand where there's risk, to actually accept and try to adopt more data to understand customers and transactions and risk the use of machine learning to have active capability, to have that kind of sharing that we were talking about earlier between institutions or within systems to understand what that risk is, to be more actively preventative and predictive, which is what we've asked the system to do in a post 9-11 environment, to do it in real time potentially, and to do it systemically so that what we're discovering is not the corner drug dealer or the small scale money service business that's hidden as a bodega or as a, as a dry cleaner, but instead the high-end money laundering 
schemes that organized criminals and drug traffickers and terrorist groups are engaged in all the time and that we discover often far too late after there's been literally billions of dollars of money laundered around the world and after these groups have been able to engage in all of the nefarious activities uh, that are so destructive to the world. And so that, in my mind, is a key thing that needs to happen, will happen, I think, within that five-year span. We're going to move toward that track two model. Mm. And I think the second development, I think, would be really important, especially in light of the Facebook announcement, is to have those that are entering the payment system not only adopt the core principles of anti-money laundering, but begin to innovate forward, not in a reactive way, in a creative way around what those designs look like. And so I think there's a real opportunity, for example, for Facebook Mm. or for others entering the the payment system or even a consortium, for example, of the the big crypto exchanges. I'm an advisor to Coinbase, have been for a number of years. You could imagine a Wolfsburg Bank-like consortium of these institutions coming together, agreeing on core principles, adopting them for these new technologies using analytics to understand where risk lies. This is what some of these uh, institutions are doing already. And beginning to think about transparency and accountability, traceability in a different way in the context of those technologies with those institutions leading the way. That I think would be a really important and novel innovation, Mm. something we're trying to promote with these uh, potential clients and some of these are our clients to say, look, you can design what good looks like, you can design the future of this, and you can meet the policy goals and deal with these policy tensions that are emerging in the system. Uh, And if you lead the way, you're gonna be more productive, you're gonna be safer, secure, and you're probably gonna be more attractive in the long-term from a business perspective or a client perspective, right? So to use sort of fat off vocabulary here, what we're really saying is concentrate a bit more on forming immediate outcomes as opposed to technical compliance. That's exactly yeah. right. What, what What's the end that we want? And we want uh, financial integrity, transparency, and security. And we need to do that in an environment that's rapidly changing and that has to take into account data privacy and personal privacy needs. Well, on that note, we can, we're, unfortunately, we have to finish this conversation oh, come on, here. Isabel. No, I'm sorry. A little bit more. <laughs> no. Um, but thank you, Juan. Thank for being here today. I must also say while we're here, Finn also has its own podcast, FinCast. We do. We have a FinCast. So, I think we're going to run this on FinCast if absolutely, that's okay. Absolutely. So, but be sure to subscribe to, subscribe to both because uh, they're both really good place to get all your financial crime news. So thank you, Juan, one more time for being here. Thank you, Isabel. Thank you to Rusi for hosting us and uh, for a great conference yesterday. I've been your host, Isabella Chase, and this podcast has been supported by Accurate Risk Intelligence. It was produced by Kayla Eisenman and Tom Ascott and it was edited by Narrative Media. Don't forget, if you'd like this podcast and other updates from the CFCS delivered directly to your inbox, sign up to the CFCS mailing list by visiting our website, www.rusi.org forward slash CFCS. Thank you for listening. That was the discussion we had in London, a great conference co-hosted with Rusi. I hope you enjoyed the interview. We'll see you next time on FinCast. Have a great day.